Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again, today we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Douglas Bennett, co-CEO of Aura Technologies. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. All right. Hello and welcome, Douglas. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm also welcomed by my partner in crime, Mike Eider. Let's start with a little bit about you. Who are you? Okay. <laughs> well, thank Hi. you for, yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm a co-CEO of Aura Technologies. So we're an advanced R&D company based in the Research Triangle area of North Carolina. And, and we appropriately, since it's about AI, we focus heavily on AI and we specialize in uh, advanced manufacturing technology, also tactical power and multiple projects in the AI space. And we have a fairly diverse portfolio. We work in uh, lots and lots in the DoD, but we also have some commercial efforts as well. And you're the CEO? Co-CEO, co-CEO. Okay. One, of, one of the CEOs, yes. One of, who's the other CEO? So that that's Anna Bennett. And uh, yeah, we are actually a husband and wife team. We have had the question at the conference one time for brother and sister. I'm like, nope, nope, not brother and sister. So yeah, yeah that, that was a pretty funny one. So that's an interesting. Uh, you chose to work with your wife. How is that? Is that working out well for you? It, it is. It is. It actually goes extremely well. Yeah. Hopefully we get along. That's, that's number one. So that was good. But in terms of like, you know, why we chose to go down this model, that co-CEO model. I can talk a little bit about that uh, if you want. We can start with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. So the, first of all, kind of out the gate, the, the fast paced environment in business today, you know, we both agreed that this is becoming too much for one person to handle. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot of plates to juggle. And we also get this question a lot because it's like, kind of like, how you just asked Bonnie, you're like, are you sure that's a really good idea? You know, and what we found is that it works extremely well. So we don't have any advantages of uh, a female being in a position of power, like, you know, woman known or anything like that. We don't do any of that. And so, cause that's usually kind of the first question uh, out the gate, but, you know, part of this is, well, A, Anna's brilliant, like absolutely, absolutely brilliant business person. So and we, we tend to pick our swim lanes, which works really well. So I tend to be tech heavy on the engineering, you know, mechanical, electrical, maybe data science side. And she's tech heavy on the biological sciences, medical R&D side, which is where some of our commercial work is focused. We, we tend to get our swim lanes overlapping in commercial strategy or, or strategy and business development and things like that. And so I could, I, we could talk for an hour on this topic because this has been, we obviously gave us a lot of thought before we pulled the trigger on it. I think one of the, the major motivations for us is, you know, there's a, there's a cliche about it's lonely at the top and why it's a cliche, it's true. When CEOs tend to get together, they tend to just like data dump on each other about what's going on in their companies and getting feedback and guidance because there's certain topics you, you just can't talk to peers about in, in, within your company, other employees, you know, there's just, 
some things that, that are, you know, CEO level, you got to keep it that way for good reasons. Whereas Anna and I working together, we have those, you know, very deep and meaningful conversations in the like most trusted environment you can have daily. So, you know, we make, we really make better decisions together and which I find quite fascinating. You know, I think the, to use another cliche, you know, I, I think she and I individually would be pretty successful in our own career paths, but it's like when we get together, it's like gas on fire. I mean, it's really, it's pretty exciting when, when things, when things align and go in the right direction. So that's a super interesting thing that you said about being alone at the top. <clears throat> My dad was a small business owner. He had, uh, he started a business just by himself, grew it to like 13 folks, but he said, it's just super lonely being the person at the top, you can't, and everybody that works for you just does that. They work for you. So they laugh at your jokes. They, 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 they have little pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have the master plan. And there's, and he said he would get together with other, you know, CEOs and other business leaders. So even your competitors, you're just like, Hey man, I, I just need somebody to talk to. And that's amazing that you can do that with your wife. That is, that's awesome. Well, it helps that she's like, really really like genius level smart so you know there's there's benefits there always marry yeah. above your station that's what i say yes that's good good guidance <laughs> so lesson learned for this podcast everyone can turn it off now right it's done we've fixed we've solved up. we've solved it we just need right. to add world peace and uh, and we're good yeah yeah you know the the whole co the co-ceo model is also controversial right i mean there's some companies are attempting it some are successful at it and, but then like a friend of mine quipped the other day, oh yeah, look at salesforce.com. Cause you know, they tried it, it didn't work out. I'm like, well, yeah, they weren't married. So, you know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah I had never heard of this co-CEO model before. Um, and then you added another layer. It's, it's not just, you know, a friend or partner, it's your wife. So I'm super intrigued by that in general. How long have you been doing this with your wife? Well, it's six years now six years so mm -hmm. yeah so it's been good it's been good Again, yeah, it, so took a while, it took a while to work things out I mean you gotta you gotta I mean you know she's obviously super high professional achiever I'm close to that so you know you, you keep you keep your swim lanes and respect autonomy and all that stuff and that takes a little while to work out but once it works out it's like it's it's very very good so and the employees it takes the employees to get used to it, especially a new employee coming in they're like what there's two of them you know and so, you know, they which refer, one do I go to? Yeah, well, that's it. So they refer to us as the Bennett's often, which is kind of funny. But, um, you know, and, and we, we just emphasize to them, hey, if you get an answer from one of us, you're good. So because we probably almost always talked about it before one of those answers gets fired out. So I would imagine you can tell me if I'm wrong. You know, if <laughs> there is a kerfuffle going on in your co-CEO relationship. How does that not carry over to dinner time, you know, at the table? That, is that a, a real scenario or anything like no, that? It's like that the, we, we tend to keep it pretty, like, if anything, there's no, there's, we tend to be able to shut off like family time from business time. That's not, not that difficult. The challenge is when we're by ourselves, you know, not in business time, we tend to talk about business because we get, we get very excited about it. I mean, it's like, you know, we get jazzed up by all the projects we're running our team. We have amazing people at Aura leading all this stuff. And, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, you know, what's Dr. Strong doing or Dr. Blake doing, or and we, we get caught up in a lot of that. So there's times we're like, all right, we're on a date. We got to stop. <laughs> so yeah, we, we do some of that, but, but yeah, we're pretty good about, about separating stuff. And we, in terms of like, you know, kerfuffles at work, 
surprisingly, we tend to come to similar conclusions or we modify them based on our feedback from each other. And so that, mm. yeah, that goes really well. So how big is your company? Uh, right now we're just under 50 and we're trying to keep it in that range because when you start getting larger, it's more and more mouths to feed. And so we want to keep that agile, lean capability of a small business with advanced tech backing it up. So, um, so we partner with a lot of companies. We have, you know, we have Lockheed Martin, um, Northrop, a few other bigs are all subcontractors to us on different projects, which is a reverse model for a small business. Usually it's the small businesses sub to the, the large primes. Yeah. How did you do that? That's very interesting. Hmm, I'm not sure how to answer that. Yeah. We, we, I guess our team is just very, very good. I mean, we, our, our staff presents what we're doing. Hey, we need your help with the systems integration side. You're, you know, you're the big heavy and they see what we're working on and they're like, whoa, that's really interesting. And they want to just stay involved. So that doesn't mean they don't ask us for money and we do pay them. So it's not free help, but you know, yeah, we, we've been very fortunate because they, they tend to vet who they work with. I mean, these large primes are extremely busy. You know, they have all their own big programs and everything else. And so I think it's when they see like some really hot tech that they're like, okay, yeah, we need to keep tabs on that. So we've been very fortunate in them, you know, vetting and selecting us uh, pretty continually. So I don't think we've had one touchdown yet at all. So that's good. Is your primary customer base the Department of Defense or government? Uh, primary, yes. We do have a heavy emphasis on commercial as well. So it's, you know, a lot of diversification. So we have... Um, if you look at our website, we have some, some actually COVID response technologies that are out there. They're very exciting. Th those are not AI involved, but they are uh, looking to do some good in the space of, you know, the biology side of things, you know, and disease, infectious disease control and things like that. What's the, what's the coolest thing you guys are working right now? That's a, that's another difficult one. Um, there's a lot of exciting ones, probably. See, now I, I got to be careful because if the team watches this, they're going to say, wait a minute, why didn't you pick my project? So we, we have we have a lot of exciting. So, so just tell all your team, we, you, you love them all equally. Well, right? I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. So we're doing, we're applying AI to ground fault detection in military systems. Okay, so one of those that we're applying that to is in the Navy electromagnetic launch system, right? So what, what that means in a nutshell is if there is a ground in the system, which is bad, that's not good, it's very difficult to detect that. We've developed a way to detect multiples of those and locate them within, physically within the system, right? So for rapid repair and all that stuff. You know, two of our guys were sitting out at a test field, a Navy facility last week, and it was like 28 degrees and they spent 10 hours outside. Those are exciting projects because they're going to make a real difference to the warfighter. So that, that gets us very excited. And then there's um, projects like Anna has been leading in the, um, or not leading, but spearheading in uh, Ion Bar on the commercial side. That's another one. So Ion Bar is a system that we, we created. We had a brainstorming session with our engineers during the beginning of the pandemic. And we came out with a suite of ideas of how our tiny company can help you know, benefit the world. And one of them is, is fairly revolutionary. And in my mind will change how we like interact in society with indoor air quality. So it's a air curtain, a gentle air curtain, not the kind where you walk through um, a supermarket and it blows your head off, but a gentle air curtain, heavily populated with negative air ions, which neutralize virus particles. 
takes out pollen and dust out of the air as well. But we tested that with live COVID virus and had a, a tremendously good result on that undetectable virus after I think so many minutes, I forget the exact number of minutes, but the, you know, the idea for me of being able to step into an elevator and breathe and be like, okay, no, it's cool. You know, that, that to me is revolutionary. So we are, we're pushing that um, to production next year and we're going to be doing a big launch on that. So, so that's a very exciting project as well. That sounds straight out of like a sci-fi novel, right? So you it is. walk in it's and really, you get, yeah, you get cleansed. Like, yeah, you get cleansed. You get, you walk you get through, cleansed. Oh, yeah. So that's a really exciting one. That's but so again, that's that's not AI focused, but it's one of our one of our numerous projects. Well, so you said a thing that's interesting to me, and we've talked to some other folks during this podcast, and there's this concept of brainstorming, right? All right, we didn't know what to do. COVID had us all locked up. We were trying to do a thing. Is that what happened with you? You said you did a brainstorming with all your engineers to figure out something. How did you do that? How did you take the time to stop what you're doing or whatever? and have that patience to think about what you should be doing because a lot of folks are so into the now right we have to do the now there's so much pressure on performing and doing and, and you're not really sure that maybe what you're doing right now is the best use of your time so how did you as a ceo decide you know what we're going to stop the presses we're going to brainstorm and how'd you do it Right. Well, co-CEOs, co-CEOs, we decided, Sorry. That, yeah, we, and Anna and I were talking about that. We're like, you know, we're sitting back, we're watching everything unfold in society. And yeah, it was pretty, I mean, I think everyone was very uncertain and wow, this is, this is unbelievable. And we felt somewhat powerless to do anything. And so we said, well, you know, but we do have a team. We do have a company, we have resources. You know, is there something we can do other than going and volunteering somewhere locally? And so we decided to, to get the team together and say, hey, everyone, we're, we're going to try this. Nothing may come out of it, but bring your best ideas and we're going to talk them through. And so that's, that's where it came. We actually had probably five, five plus really good ideas. We pursued three of them. The first um, part of one of them was a mass disinfection system. We went through, um, we started getting the FDA approval and we had, we had applied for the emergency youth author, use authorization, all that process. I mean, we went full on. The FDA was not super fast in their processing of those. And then the mask problem went away. So we went ahead and shelled that one. But the other ones we kept moving forward with. So two of those, one, one's a telemedicine presence card as well. We had a neighbor was the head of um, neurology down the road from us and was walking by and we were chatting and they had all their PPE taken away. And they said, hey, can y'all help us out with a, a telepresence system? And we MacGyvered that in like six days or something. And, and then that turned into a full product line that we have a salesperson on now with. So two, you know, several years later, but again, I apologize, not AI focused, but yeah, that's kind of what we do. No, but part of this is innovation, right? So part of this is, is how do you in the midst of, in the midst of your day-to-day -day thing. And I, I feel like it's not just in the government, but I think people just in general, you're in, you're in your routine, right? You're doing your thing. How do you know if the thing you're doing is right? And then, and then how do you take the patience? And, and it sounds like in your case, you were like, well, let's do something. We want to do something besides volunteering. We want to help. And you had a, you were out, you know, walking along your neighborhood and had a conversation with your neighbors like, hey, can you help me? Right. But, but how would people listening to this, you know, podcast take the time to, to brainstorm or talk to their leaders about, hey, man, how, let's, let's think about this. Like, how do you, how do, how do we do this? That's a complicated question. Isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, all right. So I think, you know, for us, 
we're in, you know, we're advanced research and development innovation ecosystem. You know, Anna and I have specifically created that. So my early days in my career, I was at the CIA. I was in a rapid prototyping environment at, back then before that word was even around and got a sense of, you know, we were making things, we'll just put that in quotes, for field operations and got a sense of this can-do attitude that a relatively small team of people can, can produce real results and they can do it very quickly, right? That, that spirit of innovation pervades Aura. We routinely set aside time for internal R&D activities and brainstorming sessions, and we try to support those, actually fund them from within the company, right? So that, that's the innovation ecosystem. But, but that rapid prototyping concept, bringing that forward and, um, and understanding that, yeah, it is possible. Now, I will do a quick aside, sorry, do a segue real quick. Lessons learned since then to get beyond your rapid, rapid prototyping kind of SBIR phase two types of things, that takes a lot more time, energy, and money. And that's a, a you know, that, that's a, a different ball game that I had to unlearn some of my rapid prototyping mentality thinking to move into that. But mm -hmm. back to your point on the, you know, spirit of innovation and keeping that innovation culture, we, we maintain that purposefully. So I, I don't know if I can say like, okay, well, how, who in the DOD does X? How can we respond? Why? I mean, I think it's looking at your internal resources, looking at what your mission is, where can you apply that skill set and that mission in a, in a different place that is in need, for example. And I think you'll find that there's interesting answers come out of that. I mean, it sounds like you're, it's part of your culture. Like it's, it's almost an expectation. You expect people to, you know, show up to these more thinking sessions or ideation sessions and, you know, and contribute and because like that's something you recognize that's, that's necessary needed to, to do the things you do. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yes. And that, that approach permeates our individual projects as well. I mean, that's, that's, you know, a team driven approach to solving problems. You know, every now and then we'll be like, oh yeah, X person came up with that great idea. And it's, it's usually hard to attribute that great idea to one person because we are in a very team dynamic environment. So, but yes, okay. it, we try to create that culture very purposefully and maintain it. So. So when you were talking about that mindset to get the innovation, you having to change up and now you have to, to take that innovation to the next level. So there's some folks within the DOD that'll say, you know what, we can prototype super easy, right? We prototype, we can, we can, we can find out what's, what's the cool thing that's out there, but then taking it over the valley of death, right? That where it goes from that cool thing to, hey, we're actually using it and we're using it at scale. I mean, there's a much multiple places where we've succeeded in that, right? We, we wouldn't be the DOD if we didn't, but there's some other places where, where, man, we just, couldn't get it done. So how, what's the mindset change that you talk about? Yes. <laughs> right. Another doozy, right? Yes. That's a, that's a difficult one. We face this all the time. Part of the, the, you know, everyone knows about the Valley of Death and, and the technical challenges there of getting from the, you know, lower TRLs to the higher TRLs and what's involved there. And it, it often revolves around funding, right? So how, how are you going to get the funding to make that happen? Making sure you have a champion that's, you know, has the catchers made on the other side and all that good stuff. So we've seen some really good 
very strong programs emerge. So RRTO out of OSD, great one. Those, those guys are they're on it. It's competitive. They're making people, uh, you know, the GS15s and kernels or, or SES1s of the world come in and justify, you know, why is this great? Why do you need it? What's the ROI? All that good stuff. ROI for the DOD, which doesn't necessarily mean dollars for the DOD, but it means benefit, right? The Air Force used to have a program, a commercialization readiness program. Theirs was even higher. Theirs was in the, the $5 million range, and they did a very, very effective job of partnering with the large primes and getting the large primes to identify the smaller companies that had a tech that the large prime wanted for their systems. Okay, so that, that's even more of a good filtering process. You're letting, let, let, the, let the big guys come in and, and help filter that for you while you as the Air Force in that case, you know, was adjudicating as well. That program was killed by the last, the last group that held sway over the Air Force SBIR program. Um, and that they have paid a price over there. Air Force SBIR seems to be recovering well now, which we're happy to see, but it was in bad shape for about four years there. The, uh, and I look at like Army Applied SBIR, the newly stood up group. I mean, they seem to be doing a very, very solid job. We're happy to see. And they're trying to get, all right, let's, you know, let's not have this stuff die on the vine. Let's get this transition pass. Let's, let's work that valley of death. So we see a lot of good movement in that direction. I saw an announcement the other day, you know, OSD is standing up an office trying to link up to venture capital groups and stuff like that. We don't take external funding, so that's not as beneficial uh, to like Aura, for example. Um, we tend to self-fund our own Valley of Death ventures, which mm. may not necessarily align with what the DOD wants because we're working on DOD programs and we come back and say, all right, well, folks, you know, y'all recognize the tech we're working on. You know, we're going to work with you as much as we can. And if, if we can identify the funding to get us across the valley of death so you can use that technology, then, then we're all there. But we tend to focus on our own valley of death when we see that there's going to be widespread adoption commercially, for example, whereas the DOD may only need, you know, 20 units. Okay, well, we can't self-fund a valley of death for 20 units. It's just not sustainable as a company. And now we have one of our programs called Trusted DM, Trusted AM, Trusted DM, which is a, a technology that goes from a trusted network to an untrusted um, additive and traditional manufacturing uh, capabilities where you're protecting the data files. That one does have strong commercial interest and strong DOD interest. So we're partnering with the DOD. We're self-funding some things. The DOD is funding some things. So that's like a good win-win scenario there. But I'm not sure if I'm answering your question directly, but uh, hopefully I gave you some sense of how we kind of approach that. No, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like if you don't have that demand signal from both DOD and commercial, it's it's really not worth your time and resources. Is that kind of accurate based on what you're saying? So I, I don't I wouldn't say it's not worth our time and resources. It's that we have a finite amount of resources and we have to pick and choose carefully. You know, would I love to develop things that I see that I know or that we know will benefit the warfighter, we'd love to do that, but we cannot necessarily afford it ourselves. So we have to have right. the DOD step in. Now, if that happens, then in terms of opportunity cost, because opportunity cost is a big, big, big calculation for us. That's, that's a very important. And in terms of opportunity cost, we are willing to put our own opportunity cost up if the DOD is willing to step in with us. And so, because we do believe in the mission, we believe in the DOD mission and, and all the good folks. Mm -hmm. 
doing that work. So I'm happy to support them. Yeah, I think some would, I don't know, maybe criticize the SBIR program. I'm curious, like from, you have experience doing cybers and from what you're watching happen in, in the market and stuff like that. Do you think SIBRs are enough to really increase the rate of innovation within the DoD? Because I think a lot of people would kind of say it's it's not because of what Mike's saying. Like it's it's not crossing, you know, into from SIBR to programs of record and things like that. Right. So I, I cannot say enough good things about the SBR and DoD because I've started two companies off of SIBRs and, and have done very well with this and created, I mean, this, our... So for example, IonBar, as it emerges and goes commercial, we grew that on our within our innovation ecosystem on SBIR funding on all of our programs. I mean, that's how we've created our, our innovation ecosystem. The, the critics of the SBIR program, when you're referencing like the Valley of Death side of it, that's where, that's where it should fall. It's the, okay, SBIR is meant to go through low mid TRL, and they serve that purpose very, very effectively. And that's where we get these proof of concepts done. And, you know, the idea of, and this, I'm, I'm going to use lots and lots of cliches today. So, you know, sprinkle lots of seeds and some will, some will blossom, right? If you look at the history of companies that have truly successfully emerged out of the SBIR program, I mean, that list is pretty impressive. I mean, look, iRobot's one of them out of Boston. Everyone has a, a, a Roomba somewhere. <laughs> so... You have um, uh, Cree down here in North Carolina. I mean, multi-billion dollar company that revolutionized LED lighting. I mean, that's, that's just like two quick examples. I mean, there's, if you do a search on the SBIR funded companies out there, you're gonna find some impressive, impressive former participants. Um, and like I said, you know, with, with IonBar coming out, you know, that's, that's another one SBIR can lay claim to a feather in their cap for, from Aura. You know, it creates jobs at small business, allows people to innovate quickly at least in phase ones. Now, where could the SBR process be improved? Everyone pretty much already knows this from a phase one award to a conclusion of a phase two is like three years. That's, that's too slow. That's too slow. I would rather see larger funding, shorter sprint, make it happen in a year and see where you get to make a decision gate and then make sure that the next level of funding is lined up and ready to go. And I, I hate that we talk about funding all the time because, you know, it's the defense contractors are always complaining about funding. But unfortunately, that's what pays the jobs. You know, that's if we're going to put advanced data scientists on this, we have to have funds to pay them and drive the projects forward. So back to the criticism, Sibber, there's always improvements can be made. I think, you know, like Army Applied is doing some really good innovative work. I see Air Force recovering really strongly. I see Navy and we work with all these folks, by the way. So, you know. Not going to say too bad about anyone, but the you know the Navy Navy SBIR has been adjusting some of their contract processes, and they're they're open to that, which is that's a big deal. DoD bureaucracy doesn't change very fast usually, you know. So, um, so we see, and and the Navy SBIR has been very stable for many years, and has a very good program. Their contract actions are fast, which is really good. And that's one thing we were excited about, Army Applied SBIR. They're consolidating all their contract actions into one group because we have literally waited over nine months to almost a year to get a phase two before from the Army. So that's changed. So that's very good. So there's improvement there. And people are working hard at that. So 
yeah, I, I would go back if you want to start really trying to that value of debt. That has to be that's that's outside of the SBR program. Those are different initiatives that have to be worked, and and that's that's a challenge. Why does it take about three years currently to get from phase one to phase two? So to the end of Never. a phase two. To the end of a phase two. Yeah. So yeah, so the the phase ones, you know, from the time a topic drops, you have two months to turn around a proposal. Um, they usually take anywhere from three to six months to announce the award. Hopefully, it's three. Then you have then the contracts process can take another four. Sometimes it's faster depending on the service you're working. So you're starting your phase one, you know, nine months after you submit your proposal, if everything goes according to plan. And then the phase one, depending on the service, can last six to nine months. And then there's usually some bridge funding in there. And then your phase two contract comes in after that. So you're already at a year plus just finishing your phase one, getting selected, getting your phase two contract in place. And then usually phase twos are 24 months. So you know, that's, that's usually how that runs. So, and so the speed of innovation, so that means we can't, you know, no, no robust small business is gonna live off of you know, Sibbers and Sibber phase twos. And so that's like, that's like one of your projects you're working, but you're gonna have to be working a lot of other stuff at the same time. So if you were able to consolidate that, that schedule, with you know more funding up faster to staff up and get it done, you could you could squeeze those into like twelve month efforts, for example, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Do you think it's hard also to get from phase one to phase two? Like like, isn't the onus on the yes. the Sibber to find the phase two sponsor? Like, isn't that is that correct? Yeah, you're asking complicated questions. A lot of them today. <laughs> So, so what's well, not, it's not incumbent on the SBIR office. It's supposed to be incumbent on yeah. the technical lead, the technical point of contact for your phase one, phase two. But the, you know, that really doesn't necessarily happen until the phase two is underway and you're showing some results and then they can walk forward to a program office and say, okay, look at what's going on here. You know, so lining all that up in advance is challenging, especially when you have people, you know, rotating out of the DOD military positions and everything else. Yeah. So these are all challenges. I think that our technical, our government technical partners, because once we win a competition, they, we see that as the, you know, the, the team, the government contractor team, they tend to do a very good job at that, but their hands get tied as well from, okay, well, this is not a requirement. So the program office can say, love that work. Wow, that's fantastic. That's science fiction. I don't have a requirement to buy that. So, you know, getting back to balancing requirements, balancing funding from a program office and having the technical people try to make those linkages. We usually, what a lot of the DOD people don't necessarily realize is when we're during the open period of our phase ones, we are interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing us. They don't know that. <laughs> So we are asking them questions like, all right, who, you know, where's your PEO? Who are you linked to? What, you know, where, where are you in the, the command chain and so forth and so forth. So um, to mm -hmm. make sure that we know if we have our opportunity costs of going down the path with this group, uh, whatever group that is, that they know what they're doing and we can be successful together. Now that doesn't mean they're going to select our phase one proposal. That happens too. Yeah. So, but we we try to make sure we're we're picking wisely as we go into that. Yeah, I get contacted by quite a few vendors who are looking for their phase two and phase three a place to land. I would say because right. I guess it was I couldn't say what happened, but it, it just there was a disconnect apparently. 
Yes, that, but, that, that will happen. That will happen. And we try to partner with our government leads as much as we can and you know appropriately to go find additional funding to find the mm -hmm. programs that are looking for us and you know network out and I mean there's obviously a huge innovation ecosystem within the DoD so we try to tap into that in the various sectors so yeah like you said there's some, there's some goodness happening in small pockets it's all to me widely disconnected um, the goodness happening in the cyber has no strong tie or connection to right the people who are executing the majority of like sustainment and re resources available for sustainment or something like that and so it just it creates a type of labyrinth that people like companies like you have to navigate you know especially if you don't have that a strong government counterpart to help you navigate and and i think this is part and parcel of some of the, the i don't know the challenges to to your point like it's too it takes too long right it just takes too long and and so how do you you, you can't adopt emerging tech or or even ai in a cycle like that right right yeah you ha you have to the companies that that know what they're doing will work like kickoff meeting it's all right who who do we need to help you talk to talking to our government partners and you know where's the path we need to while the technology is being developed in parallel what is that for lack of a better phrase you know business development path we need to take to make sure that there this all comes together at the end so we we do have to work that and that's Mm. There's skills involved with that. We have some, you know, tremendously talented folks here who are, you know, former military. You know, we have a, a retired Navy captain that leads our, our DoD side, uh, Captain Mark Maxwell. You know, who's you know deep ties to the Navy. Um, you know, we have former Army folks that work with us. So there, there is a bit of that that has to occur. And you're correct. You have to find the right champion inside that's that knows what they're doing too. Who's not only enthusiastic yeah. about what you're doing believes in it, believes the cost benefits and all that. I, and, you know, I think what challenges does the DOD face, you know, with the adoption of AI, for example, I could talk to that if you want to, or we could go to other questions. If yeah. you Let's do it. Okay. Go for it. Yeah, I, I think um, you're, because you're touching on very parallel things here to the technical leads and the cyber program and AI and adoption of AI and the DOD outside of the cyber program. And what we're finding is, well, okay, so first of all, we started down this path six years ago with Aura saying, all right, we're going to go in with our expertise into the AI space, into the DoD, and try to do good. You know, as you said, the goodness, right? There's, read the news, we're being outspent on AI by potential adversaries, and the DoD has to embrace that because if our potential adversaries leapfrog our technology using machine intelligence, that, that is not a good thing. So it won't matter how much we've spent on defense, right? To be able to harness the power of that computing intelligence is, is critical. So we went in and we, we did this very systematically and we started at the, you know, kind of the, the GS 14, 15 SCS1 level. So think of it as like the Colonel Captain level. And we also, you know, went in high. We went in high at the OSD level and figured out, okay, okay, who is making decisions? This is really when the Jake, I mean, I was at the announcement of the Jake kickoff in the, the Joint AI Center, but I know it's renamed now, but where do we start? And what is the field of play in AI? Because the last thing we want to do is work, walk in with commercial AI expertise 
into a DOD environment or an intelligence community environment, and they go, oh, no, no, we're, we're already doing that over here, you know, and we're like, okay, never mind. And so what we found is, oh, no, yeah, no one's doing this. So, I mean, everywhere we went, there was no one working in AI in the DOD in any constructive manner, except for, you know, to keep using the seed and flower, you know, little garden plots here and there, right? And we also started encountering, because AI became the buzzword of the day, all kinds of companies are like, yep, we do AI, we do AI. And we're like, oh God, this is not going to go well. And we've been up against some of that because it's, frankly, when you're a small advanced tech company and they, without knowing our you know, bona fides or whatever, they're like, okay, yep, we've been told this plenty of times and people keep falling on their faces. So when they said, we do AI, we do AI, how would you, not to interrupt, but like, how would you, so, so what is AI, right? To the, to the, to the common person, right. what, how would you describe, what is AI? Okay, so AI is the ability to take and to tap into data. I'm going to put quotes around data because that's a whole other topic by itself, but to tap into data and use advanced machine learning algorithms to come up with results that classical computing cannot, that is more analogous to human processing of being able to take in large amounts of information as you know, you and I sit here, we're taking in a tremendous amount of information, visually, audially, um, tactically, tactically, and coming to conclusions in a fairly miraculous manner, right? I mean, the fact that I am breathing and speaking to you and blinking all at once is, uh, that's probably a miracle right there. So AI using these advanced algorithms that they started working on back in the 70s and they developed over time and they were successful of coming to conclusions with data that informs human decision-making in a very optimized manner. That, it, that comma, that is not possible with classical computing algorithms. So that is, thank God, my head of AI is not standing behind me. I think he would not approvingly <laughs> of that statement. But anyway, so I put quotes around data. We can talk about that. We can talk about understanding the, the challenges in the DoD of understanding what AI is and AI isn't. Well, that, um, let's let's follow that one. What is AI? What is it not? Because there have been some folks, and you know, obviously, you know, your some of your experiences were six, seven years ago. Now things have changed. You know, the the ecosystems evolved, and we're probably not in the same position we were when when you started. But there may be some similarities. Like, but I still think that overarching, what AI is, what AI isn't. Hey, sprinkle some AI on that. You know, I've, I've watched a movie. I know what AI is. Right. You know, sure. it's 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 Skynet. No, it's you know somebody playing Go. You know what? I'd love to hear your thing. What is it? What is it not? It's all those things. No, not really. Yeah. Uh, no. Done. So yeah. So again, there's different flavors of AI, right? There's the Amazon Alexa. For example, I mean that—that's you know voice recognition. That's that's its own flavor. There's image recognition. You know the there's there's different kinds of AI processing areas. Time series analysis is one we do a lot, right? Where you're you could have real time data coming in, or you can look at historical data. So it depends on the application we're talking about. So the biggest challenge for us, I think, are for to me for the DoD is understanding and defining the benefit in a specific use case 
and then getting behind that benefit and staying with it because mm -hmm. it's not magic and it takes time. I'm going to say service unnamed. One of our experiences before was that fairly impactful program that we were going to come in, do an assessment, look at their data. That's incredibly important. Analyzing all the data up front, figuring out that what they have, don't have, how it needs to be scrubbed, organized, and arranged with all the data science up front. Then go into testing with different machine learning models, right, to, to get the results they were after. That group decided instead, and so, and we're talking about bringing like, you know, PhD level data scientists to this problem. That group instead decided, no, we have our data, we're putting into IBM Watson, and we're going to get results out. And they're going to do that in-house with their own government employees who are engineers. Now, that, that, don't get me wrong, smart engineers, but not data scientists. So that's that scares me when they do things like that. You know, it was definitely cheaper because they didn't have to hire us. IBM Watson, you see the commercials on TV all the time about the guy showing up. Oh yeah, Elevator Three just said it needs repair or it's about to need repair, right? So, you know, sustainment and, and repair and everything. That's all great. The problem is understanding that to even use those advanced tools, you have to know how to set them up right. And once, and so, so even in that scenario, let's, let's use the metaphor of an enterprise system in the DoD. Lots of very complex computing and enterprise systems in the DoD. Y'all may have or may not have encountered when those were not set up correctly, right? They, they, they can be very, very difficult. And if, they, if the forethought isn't put in upfront to configure them the right way, there's a lot of work on the back end to fix it. Guaranteed, you take AI data and you shove it into an AI model, it's going to give you an answer. You will have an answer in your hand. Now, is that the right answer? And is that going to impact warfighter effectiveness? Well, maybe, you know, but maybe it could be the wrong answer if the people putting it in don't know what they're doing. And you got to be very careful with that. The difference between an enterprise system and an AI system, once that data, once you have an enterprise system, okay, it's going to function, it's going to repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Now, there may be flaws you can fix in your enterprise system, but it's going to do pretty much the same thing. The AI systems will not do that. They will have drift over time. They have to be retrained. They have to be monitored. So to get that goodness out of your AI system, you have to have people knowing what's going on inside of it and testing it and monitoring it over time to make sure you're still getting the same reliable answers. You know, model drift is, you know, that's, that's dangerous. It can be dangerous. So, and I think a lot of people don't quite understand that. So I think... The, the way we tend to approach things differently is we focus very, very heavily on that data front end before we touch the ML models, the machine learning models that the data is going to go into. The machine learning models, frankly, are not your high risk factor when you're developing these systems. These, are, these models are known. If the first one doesn't work, there's 40 others behind it that you can run through with high-end graphical processing units like you know, GPUs, like super fast, and you, you crunch and crunch and crunch and crunch, and then you converge on the right model and you're good. But it's only as good as the data that goes in. So, you know, a big challenge in the DoD from our experience is understanding that you have to have data engineers working on the front end very extensively, and that is not cheap before you can even shove the data into an ML model to see what's going to come out and process that and, and you know, get the goodness out, so to speak.
So that was a long-winded response, but I hope that. Oh, that was a fantastic nerd out. That's that's okay. Great. Sorry about that. That was probably no, no, it's that, no, it's fantastic. So you, what you were talking about a little bit of you know, and I, I liken it a little bit to black box AI, right? So there's a term out there, black box AI. Just put it in the just throw it into the magic thing, and it'll spit out an answer. And that sounds to me like what you were talking about is a trend of like we'll just. You know, don't worry about the upfront stuff and throw it into the black box and make the magic work. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, I'm saying be careful what's in the black box. <laughs> right, because <laughs> it's what, and, what you throw into the black box. Be very careful what's going in. That's key. And having people who really know what they're doing on the front end and then have people on the other side monitoring what's going on in the black box to make sure the black box is still current and is doing what yeah you know. yeah so i think that's I need, it's difficult to communicate that to, to folks so well you can when you think about the human mind and how it is like stuff just happens right your brain just thinks about stuff but you don't know exactly what the brain is doing you can say oh it's firing off neurons they're touching it. it's a big old thing that folds on itself and there's different parts of it and this controls sight, this controls smell, this, we don't really know how, but we know like that's where the things fire off when we, when we see observed action. And so the, there are folks that are like, well, we have to know exactly how the AI works in order to trust it. And it's like, well, do you trust your gut feel when you're, you know, when the hairs in the back of your neck, you know, stand up as you're walking, you know, in a place you shouldn't be walking to? No, you just know something's not there. So how do you trust something that you can't understand? And so, and that was my long-winded way of getting around to my question of AI. How do you trust it, right? How do you trust it if you can't explain it? And why should we use it? Why should we? Why should we do anything with it uh, when when it's not explainable? Well, that's that's an interesting point. We actually put a heavy emphasis on quote unquote explainable AI and understanding how it's making the decisions it's making. That's our AI team focuses on that a lot. So that's, that's one quick answer is, well, make sure you can explain it. And, but you're also looking at training data. You want very, very robust training data so that you know it's coming out with something humans rationally would expect for it to answer so that you can trust it moving forward with data that you haven't, you haven't validated, for example. So I think that's, that's one good example. I mean, that's, so I, I guess I would say you don't necessarily have to trust unexplainable AI you want to pressure test it and pressure testing is good. That's good. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, our, our CDAO, Dr. Martell, he, he always emphasizes you have to get the data right before you can do the AI things. And I, I think that's what you're describing. Yes. The work you're talking about to get the data right. Like, I think there's a nuance there, even I don't understand. How is the data, quote unquote, not right or not ready? Not, I have also heard that term, not AI ready. What right. are some things, I don't know, that you, you all do or see a lot for, in particular with DOD? Right. Well, the, and again, this depends on the specific use case. And mm -hmm. you know, this is when it would be nice to have Dr. Strong here is our, you know, our, our head of AI systems. And that's actually his name. It's also his superpower name. But anyway, it's his uh, superhero name, Dr. Strong. I'll give you one quick example, like in uh, manufacturing data, right? The, the technical data packages. One location within the DoD, it's a repair depot, has 23 different disparate databases with, no, sorry, 27 different disparate data, data, databases 
all with different formatting for their technical data packages for parts that they could produce. So that is an example of messy data. So what we then have to do is go in and say, all right, we're gonna put a layer over that. And um, we call these smart TDDs, right? That can translate each individual stovepiped data repository to a common standard that our system will ingest. So that, that's an example of having to do a lot of upfront work and knowing then what is present and what is missing in like this is one simple example of a technical data package repository. The, the, you know, talking about challenges of AI in the DOD, that stovepipe data is one of them. That's a big, big challenge. That's, that's always been a challenge in the DOD. We've been talking about stovepipe data in the DOD since you know, I became an engineer decades ago. I won't say how many. And you also start getting into the culture of the DOD. So this is one of our, and, and I'm, I'm not here to promote Aura, this is one of the things we like to focus on is how can we put solutions in place where we're not trying to change the culture of the DOD? Because I'm not gonna be successful doing that. I don't think anyone is gonna be successful at changing the culture of the DOD. So how can our technology accomplish what we wanna do by fitting into the existing culture? So you're dealing with stovepipes of data, you're dealing with disparate data, meaning they're not formatted the same way. It may be similar data or related to each other, like technical data packages. They're gonna contain a CAD file. They're gonna contain post-processing instructions. They may have an additive manufacturing file in there. So they're gonna be similar, but they're gonna be arranged differently and they may have different content. And we're not gonna be able to go to group number 12 and tell them to rearrange their data like group number 25 has done. That's, that's just not going to happen. So we come in as an external company, say, all right, fine, we're going to put a, a middle layer, a wrapper around it. And when we ingest your data, however you want to keep it, we're going to translate it to be usable. So working within that culture, the part we have a hard time solving, though, is there'll be groups that one group in the DoD will have data that the other group can use or will need. They don't necessarily know each other. And if we introduce them, that doesn't mean group B is gonna let group A use their data anyway. That's, that's another challenge. We don't think creating one giant data silo is the answer, but figuring out at the you know, OSD level, how to get groups interacting with each other to allow each other to share data. And obviously there's security levels and all kinds of crazy stuff to go into that. Um, that would be a good challenge for the DOD to solve, but it's not an easy problem. There's definitely not an easy problem to fix, so. So if I could switch gears just a little bit, I looked briefly into your background. You went to Iowa State. You were a, a creative writing, physics, astro now, stuff. Sharks now the with podcast lasers. in because we're getting into boring stuff. That's fine. No, so so you helped. Your it's fascinating to me why you would pick what you picked, right? So it, it's, you have a little science -y, you've got some creativity, you've got policy. And, and so it's like, what were you, what were you trying to do? And then my follow-up question, I, I saw something that you were, you helped with some of the NASA stuff getting to Mars. So I want to, I want to go space. We talked a little bit of everything. I want to go space. So number one, why that interesting selection of education background? Um, well, yeah. Right? There's another hard question. Yeah, so, yeah, so tell me your life story. No. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I, I remember coming decades ago, again, an un, unnamed number, but it's a lot, you know, coming out of high school, I was like, all right, let's look at marine biology. You know, let's look as I grew up in South Carolina, I enjoyed creative writing and I enjoyed what I knew of what was technology, which back then was not a lot because we didn't have the computing resources, you know, in schools like we do today. So I remember going to the library pre-internet. So that gives you one good date reference, picking out a book and looking at the starting salaries of those three areas. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pick engineering. So that was, that was how I went in engineering. I went to Georgia Tech. Phenomenal, phenomenal accidental choice going to Georgia Tech. And yeah, just, uh, Love technology, got into that, cut my teeth on space back with the, the CIA and assigned to the National Reconnaissance Office. I could not say that for a long time, but, and uh, yeah, it was just a phenomenal experience. And then a little later in my career, was doing a reset and decided I want to pursue that creative side. So I took a break and went and got you know, a creative writing degree and uh, very much enjoyed that. It informed my communication skills and the ability to write, things like that. So, you know, I don't. Yeah, that's a fantastic blend of the both sides of the brain, right? So you got the engineering, let's put it all together and the creative writing side of like, let's make it interesting, but it still has structure. Like how, how do you balance that? Oh, I probably don't. Well, you could talk to my co-CEO and I'm sure she would have an interesting answer on that. But so, you know, from a creative side, you know, again, that innovation ecosystem we have, I mean, that that's a very, very, it's a fun environment to work. I mean, if anything, I have to monitor not jumping into projects because I just enjoy that side. Anna and I both enjoy that side, but we have to step back. Or I have to force myself to step back because the team's got it. They're smarter than me and they're going to do a great job. So I don't think it's too difficult to balance that because we get to use that creative space within the engineering side too. So cool. I saw you did something with going to Mars. Are we going to be able to, when, when are we getting to Mars in your opinion? When are we, oh, when, when are we I, getting there? I have been unplugged from the side for a while. Oh, okay. What you're referencing was when I was at the National Academy of Sciences, I was the staff director for a committee that was looking at Mars exploration. And we were looking at what NASA at the time, the Mars office was asking, you know, what do we need to know about Mars factually? to design safe systems for astronauts to go there because they had all kinds of people wanting to fly missions, right? For, oh yeah, we got to learn this date or that date. And so the, the, the committee was able to kind of adjudicate all these different, you know, uh, some wild, some good, whatever ideas to help uh, the NASA Mars uh, office kind of focus on their future missions. And, that, and they implemented a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. Uh, they flew those payloads. I don't feel expert enough today to answer that question. I'm very encouraged by the Artemis program that's going on right now and what they just did with the moon. And it's good to see, you know, seeing us going beyond low, low Earth orbit. The person you should talk to is uh, one of our, Anna and I's direct reports. Hilarious when I always say this, Frank Culbertson. He is a former commander of the space station. Um, and uh, he was also former president of North Grumman Space. So he retired and now he works for us. So he technically reports to, to Anna and I, which is very funny to say. If Frank, whatever Frank says goes, that, that's how all employees are here at Aura. Whatever they say goes. So right. He, he would be far more well-versed in this topic than me. So. 
I like to, so my son is, uh, he's going to school in Missouri, Rolla. He is studying aerospace engineering. That's, that's he's all about space. Yeah. He's like, he wants to, to get us up there. And there's an entire generation that's like, well, yeah, we're getting to Mars. And I just, it just excites me. I think it's fantastic. It is. It's, it's a, it's a daunting challenge and people don't, if anything, the work I did back then, it was eye-opening about how challenging it is. It's way, way, way more difficult than the moon. So, but it'll be, yeah, they'll be up for it. Sorry for the squirrel. I just couldn't help ah, it's myself. Okay. It's okay. It's, we have to nerd out yeah. some. In what, in what capacity were you advising them, like as an engineer or some other competency? For, for, that, for that study? Yes. I was at the National Academy of Sciences or National Academies. They conduct studies for the government pro bono. So you have a bunch of volunteers that get together and do fact finding around any given topic. And then they come out with their report. So I was one of the paid staff members that worked for the academies. I was a study director. So I worked with the chair of that committee in managing the committee, helping pull all the stuff together, helping with some of the writing and things like that. And, you know, the chair of that committee at that time was Rick Howe, a fantastic guy. He was the, the space shuttle commander, the first space shuttle launch after the Challenger disaster. So you can imagine Rick was a pretty steady level-headed guy. And we had a very wide array of expertise from robotics to we had some EPA people on there for toxicology. I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was one of the most fun studies I worked on, but, but that was the capacity. I was in a very much a support role for this committee and helping pull all this stuff together. So mm, interesting. Yeah. It was fun. It was it was a great time. I actually want to go back to when you were talking about like you were involved in rapid prototyping before that was like a cool buzzword. Yeah. Um, that so this is very much so I, this is very much my wheelhouse. But I, I don't think I'm doing rapid prototyping the way you're talking about it. You're talking about like starting with like lower TRL lovers left levels and maturing it to a place where it can go to a production state or commercial, you know, market or something like that. So you, you were doing rapid prototyping in an environment that didn't even know what rapid prototyping was. It sounds like, can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you? Um, well, yeah. So I, I was a very, very young engineer at the time. We were in a, a shop that, again, we have to say making things for the CIA in the field and we'll put a period okay. behind that sentence there but i again it was so this would be very low volume this was you know these were one-offs or few offs and this was at a time i mean again aging myself like there was no such thing as commercial surface mount technology out at that time the intelligence community tended to be on the leading edge of some of that tech for what they needed and you know you had technicians with microscopes tuning the inductance on a on a coil using tweezers and, and reading it out in the oscope. You know, so I mean it's it's things like that. It was a very exciting environment, very mission driven. You know, you're getting things done, and it was again for me showing that a relatively small team of people could come out with some pretty innovative tech, right? Pretty quickly, pretty quickly, and it didn't necessarily have to be perfect, but it had to work. Back to what, and again, this is before rapid prototyping was a word. So again, aging myself. The difference in what I have learned over the years, you know, you, you referenced, you know, before you go to design and production and all that, you know, the, 
And I think this, this is probably a little bit of a challenge for the, the DOD environment. The beauty of SBIR is you can get small companies who are super agile and lean to do stuff like that for not a lot of money. And, and that's a good thing. And you're getting proof of concept and all that. What we then encounter though, it's back to the valley of death. It's, it's about the connectivity of the command chain, of the benefits of what these small companies are working on and what the, the lower level of the, the super bright DOD in-house engineers are excited about, making sure that connection is there because to go from that prototyping, going to a design for production, that's a completely different, that's a completely different mindset. It's a different skill set. It's different engineers doing that work. And, and that's where there, I think there's a bit of disconnect of the engineering teams within the DODs understanding of what we have to do on the commercial side to get it from that low TRL rapid prototyping mode proof of concept to something that someone's going to carry downrange. On the advanced tech side, if you're talking like materials development for a lighter weight frame pack or things like that, that's, that's a little different. We're talking usually about advanced electronics that have to be hardened. If you want to start doing FPA, FPGA-based AI processing at the pointy end of the spear, that's a robust board design. It has to be carefully designed. You know, our in-house board designers take a lot of time designing our custom boards to do that kind of thing. And so these are very high-end advanced computing devices that you need to get into the field. And to do that, it's completely opposite of what rapid prototyping is. So, you know, I think, I think I, I'm answering your question for two ways. One, there's a lot of excitement, get it done. Let's get some, you know, low funding in, proof of concept out, that's great. But then the hard part comes in where you have to get your chain of command engagement. You have to make sure the PEO is linked in. You have to make sure the, fund, the future funding is going to come because it's no longer going to be 750K or a million. It's, you know, multiples of millions to get a focused software development team that has true quality control, commercial grade quality control processes, engaging things like that. No, I think you make a, an interesting point, even for myself to kind of think about uh, in the in environments where, where speed is everything. And right. so a lot of when we're coming up with, even on the contractual side, strategies and stuff like that, speed is key or we target speed. But I think you're, Speed in the beginning to get to the ideation and the invention part is different from the speed you need in that mindset shift. Once once you've proved out the concept and you are iterating to scale, I, I think there is a, a deliberate mind shift that I've maybe not recognized myself. On the contractual side, I'm sure we could commiserate all day about the speed of contracting. <laughs> so yeah. um, this is where I'm going to filter <laughs> so, because we... We love our contract staff and when they're good, they are phenomenal and they're with it and they know how the process works and they're like, we're gonna get you working and that's great. When it doesn't go smoothly, it bogs down, bogs down, bogs down. And so that's, that can be very frustrating. And it's our job, you know, as the contractor staff to partner with our you know, internal government team members, once we've made it fast, you know, the competitive proposal phase, to make sure we work within the bureaucratic framework to get it done as quickly as possible. And that, that's, how we, that's how we try to approach that. But it can be, it can be frustrating for everyone involved, yes. And, and even, even you know, with OTAs, OTAs can be extremely effective and they, they also have their, their pitfalls. We've had, we've had OTAs delayed for a year and now 
And we're like, mm -hmm. ah, we should have gone flower-based contract. That would have been faster. You know, <laughs> so there's, uh, you know, funding issues there where, again, that connectivity from the super smart engineers at the branch level who are doing great work, making sure they have really, really solid buy-in from the top levels who can pull their budget and in the snap of the finger. So, you know, those kinds of things can be very frustrating when we encounter them. But, but yeah, the contracts process and figuring out how to speed that up, the government should not lose focus on that. That is, that is a major impediment to innovation is when we're sitting idle, you know, any contractor is sitting idle for three to six months while a contract is being put in place. Preaching on the choir. Yes. Yeah. No, this is uh, it's a major focus of mine and a, a partner of mine, a colleague of mine. We in contracts, so we're we're very much attuned to it. And the, but it's a build some momentum in this and then stop the madness because OTAs in particular, they don't have to be twelve months. Like some somebody right. is choosing right to create a process that goes that long. So, like you said, we could, I could I could rant all day. So I think Douglas brings an interesting perspective, right? So you've said a couple of interesting things for me. It's like one, you're a small business, right? And you're in the innovation space. You've had some success going and, and, and it's a little bit of my background. I've been on both sides of the fence, right? I, I'm a national guard guy, but I've also managed a PL. I've had, you know, managed a business myself and just looking at it from those two ways. And it sounds like you've also worked inside with, with some agencies and you've been, you've been on both sides too. Is there anything out there that you see that's critical for people to stay in the game while the DOD, that institutional inertia changes, right? So there's all kinds of goodness in the DOD, but then there's all kinds of stuff that is, that is a little bit legacy, right? It hasn't, it hasn't evolved yet. And uh, is there any kind of advice or any to, to the folks out there that to, to stay in the game while the situation changes? I mean, Bonnie wants to, to instigate and disrupt. I'm similar, but there's also the majority of us are, are just like, okay, we see things changing and there's, there's goodness happening. You know, any advice to those small businesses out there or those procurement folks that are like, man, I signed up to do a thing to stay in the game. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I guess, Bonnie, I can talk to you, right? About <laughs> not getting frustrated. You know, we, this, is, this is the same message. We, we have been very adept at pulling in commercial talent and getting it into the DOD environment. And um, this was a push I, five, 10 years ago where, you know, the DOD, especially in the AI space, is like, you know, we really, really need commercial grade talent focused on a warfighter mission. And we were successfully able to do that. I mean, I think every, I don't think a single one of our data scientists has a, a DOD or military background for that matter. We have lots of military background, the rest of the company, but in our, our data science space. And we got them excited because of the mission, because of the work. What we do at Aura is we tend to have a, a fairly diverse portfolio of projects. And so if someone is like, yeah, that one really doesn't excite me, we, we can put them on one of our other projects that does excite them, right? That's not answering your question directly, I'm getting that. So they then get, we have seen them getting frustrated when they encounter true DOD bureaucracy. And we have to manage that messaging. We have to explain that, hey, the bureaucracy is there for a reason. It, it protects the ship. 
you know, small businesses, the reason DOD and the large primes love small business, because we can spin the wheel on our boat really fast and pivot wherever we need to go to, the large bureaucracies cannot. And, but that, that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, you want to keep in the generally the right direction and not swing too far one way or the other as you go. So you're going to come up against that bureaucratic approach to doing things. And it's there for a reason. Keep an eye on the mission. Look at the, the small wins that you encounter. Those are, those are good wins. So I've complained in the past when I'm in a complaining mode about, you know, why can't this be easier? Why can't that be easier? This is, why does this one have to be so difficult? You know, and I realized over time, I was like, oh, well, that's because no one has done it before. So, you know, when you're blazing a new trail, it's, it's gonna be difficult. It's, it's a hard path. But once you do it and it proves successful, then that, that gives you some edification there that you've made a difference and that it is changing and it's required to change. So, so it's, it's the focus on the mission. It's the focus on the exciting work that we're going to get done. The contract may not be in today. It might be six months from now, but we have other exciting work in the meantime. And if that, if that helps. So absolutely. Yeah, because we don't want to see, like when I, I remember when I was at the NRO, we had a, a guy there that was coming up with some really innovative stuff and, and he got frustrated and left, didn't like the government approach or whatever. Another one of my colleagues there who also had some pretty innovative ideas, I mean, he stuck it out and now he's like one of the top three there. So he's, you know, now he's able to affect like serious change because of just the seniority level. So for people who are inside the government wanting to make change, don't give up because you'll find people who are like-minded and then you can commiserate with them on the other stuff you don't <laughs> so and and change will happen it can just be slow over time and seek out those other folks who are like-minded and explore the ideas and listen to the feedback from the people on the reality side so you know i gave you the example earlier you know we're not trying to change the dod culture now y'all are on the inside y'all potentially could but how can you work within the DOD culture to affect change that still achieves the same ends? You know, think of those terms. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for conversing with us. Oh, very, and you're very welcome. Hope it, hope it wasn't, uh, didn't put you all to sleep. But. No, not at all. Thanks so much. But thank you. Thank you so much, Douglas, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation, and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping that conversation going and giving us all the information we needed out of this episode today. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today.